68 years ago, many years before I was born, my father was outraged because he discovered that my mother, following a miraculous healing, had been seated with a neighbor lady in her living room, and the neighbor lady was a Sabbath keeper. And my mother, curious about that, said, why do you folks keep Saturday for Sunday? The lady's name was Mrs. Aura Runcorn. And she said, well, Loma, let me just show you instead of giving you an answer. And so she opened the Bible and she turned to the second chapter of the book of Genesis. Then she turned on through into the book of Exodus. And then she turned into Deuteronomy. And then finally... She went into Isaiah 56 and Mark 2:27, and she got into many examples in the New Testament and in the book of Acts, and finally all the way toward the end of the Bible to Hebrews 4. And she did this without commentary. And she said, Loma, please read this and please read that. Now, to refresh my memory, because I want to make sure that I tell this correctly, I picked my copy of my father's autobiography. It's a two-volume set off of the shelf last night found the area. would like to read just a portion to you quickly. Mrs. Armstrong's active interest in things, biblical, was reawakened. One day, Mrs. Runcorn gave her a Bible study. She asked my wife to turn to a certain passage and read it. This is page 288 on the first volume. She gave no explanation or argument, just asked my wife to read aloud a series of biblical passages. Why, exclaimed Mrs. Armstrong in amazement, do all these scriptures say that I've been keeping the wrong day as the Sabbath all my life? Well, do they? asked Mrs. Runcorn. Don't ask me whether you've been wrong. You shouldn't believe what any person tells you, but only what God tells you through the Bible. What does he tell you there? What do you see there with your own eyes? Why, it's as plain as anything could be, exclaimed Mrs. Armstrong. This is a wonderful discovery. I must rush back to tell my husband the good news. I know that he will be overjoyed. A minute or so later, Mrs. Armstrong came running into my parents' home with the good news. My jaw dropped. This was the worst news I had ever heard. My wife had gone into religious fanaticism. Have you gone crazy? I asked incredulously. Of course not. I was never more sure of anything in my life, responded my wife with enthusiasm. I wondered if she really had lost her mind, deciding to keep Saturday for Sunday. That seemed like rank fanaticism, and my wife had always had such a sound mind. Now suddenly, this. It seemed incredible. Loma, I said sternly, this is simply too ridiculous to believe, and I'm not going to tolerate religious fanaticism in our family. You're going to have to give that up right here and now. But she wouldn't. Doesn't the Bible say that wives must be obedient to their husbands, I asked? Yes, but in the Lord, not contrary to the Lord, she responded. It was amazing how many legal argu logical arguments came to my mind, but she could always answer. I felt I couldn't tolerate such, such humiliation. What would my friends say? What would former business acquaintances think? Nothing had ever hit me where it hurt so much right smack in the middle of my pride and conceit. And this mortifying blow had to fall immediately on top of confidence-crushing financial reverses. In desperation, I said, Loma, you can't tell me that all these churches have been wrong all these hundreds of years. Aren't these all Christ churches? He was a Quaker and she was a Methodist. Then came back Mrs. Armstrong, why do they all disagree on so many doctrines? Why does each one teach differently from all the others? Well, he goes on with the argument, but then he talks about the six months when he was largely without a job and struggling and trying to feed a family. He was 34 years of age at this time, about the age of my son, Matthew, trying to feed a family of two young girls. Neither my brother Richard David nor I were anywhere on the horizon yet. He began to actually be on the steps of the Portland, Oregon library before it was even open. And the minute they opened the door, he would be in there, and we'd be in there for hours of the day going through all the theological books, including such things as the Catholic Encyclopedia, as well as many of the religious books that he could find in the theological library. On page 301, he wrote, I became painfully disappointed on learning by more careful study there was not a single instance of a religious service being held on the hours we call Sunday, Saturday midnight to Sunday midnight, 
The Apostle Paul, after spending a Saturday Sabbath with the church at Troas, preached to them Saturday night until midnight. But although in the biblical manner of ending each day and beginning the next at sunset, that was, biblically speaking, quote, on the first day of the week, it was not Sunday, but Saturday night, lasting until Sunday began at midnight, the way we would count time. I was further disappointed in this case when I discovered on careful study that on Sunday Paul indulged in the labor of walking some 19 miles to Assos. The others of Paul's company had sailed beginning sunset when the Sabbath entered around the peninsula some 65 miles to Assos. By walking the 19 miles straight across on Sunday, Paul had gained the extra time to continue speaking to the people on Saturday night. He mentions the many places, only eight in total, in the New Testament where the phrase, the first day of the week, appears. At this period of time in his life, four years before I was born, my father came across the article in the Catholic Encyclopedia. He was probably as chagrined as I when he read, and I have taken the trouble to get my copy and to copy it down and to bring it here to you, the following quote. Now this is one of the most vaunted authorities in the world. If there is any place where you're going to find biblical exegesis, intelligent, erudite explanation of Catholic and therefore largely Protestant doctrine, because the only leg the Protestants have to stand on for Sunday observance is the authority of the Pope at Rome, beginning with Constantine, but in effect not really being forced upon the Church until about three and a half centuries after the time of Christ when it was then enforced sometimes by the sword. This is the quotation out of the Catholic Encyclopedia under the article Sunday, quote, Day of the Sun, as the name of the first day of the week, is derived from Egyptian astrology. Sunday was the first day of the week according to the Jewish method of reckoning, but for Christians it began to take the place of the Jewish Sabbath in apostolic times as the day set apart for the public and solemn worship of God. The practice of meeting together on the first day of the week for the celebration of the Eucharistic sacrifice is indicated in Acts 20 and verse 7. Oh, Acts 20 and verse 7. My father just told you in his autobiography what he discovered four years before I was born when he looked at this same scripture. Let's see if you can discover the same thing. This vaunted authority of the Roman Catholic Church says that when you turn to the Scripture, you're going to find Christians meeting together on Sunday to celebrate the Eucharistic sacrifice. Verse 6, reading up to it, we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. Well, now, how astounding that Luke would bother to put that in there when this is during a new covenant period of time. And the chronologer, who is Luke, is still talking about Old Covenant stuff, according to some people, like the days of unleavened bread. Now, any self-respecting Methodist is going to avoid that scripture like the plague, because nobody wants to be asking his pastor, uh, what are the days of unleavened bread anyway? And then the pastor, oh, it's a lot of Jewish stuff. Don't trouble your head with it. Uh, it's just Jewish. Don't worry about it. Probably what the answer is going to be came to them in Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. Isn't that interesting? They came together to break bread. What does break bread mean? If you look it up in the original, it means the same thing that you do if you go in and get a, a croissant or a French loaf of bread, because they use what we now call pita bread. And the word break bread, break bread carried an even greater meaning. In many scriptures, it is true. You can look it up in some of the Bible helps, the commentaries, Bullinger's Companion Bible. That breaking bread merely meant eat a meal. And that meal could consist of many things besides bread. It was not just bread without something on it. It oftentimes could even include meat. They came together for a meal. Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. This was a late Sabbath afternoon. He preached all through the late waning evening hours, preached on through the night until midnight, 
And as a matter of fact, he preached so long that a young man named Eutychus, verse 9, fell out of the balcony, broke his neck, and God, by a divine miracle, healed the man. And then, of course, Paul walked the 19 miles, verse 13, that my father determined long, long ago. The next scripture, remember, the first day of the week for the celebration of the Eucharistic sacrifice is indicated in, quote, 1 Corinthians 16.2. Let's turn to that and see if this vaunted authority, and remember it was written by one man, a Catholic scholar, but it was certainly approved by all Catholics, by the College of Cardinals, and by the Pope himself. It is an approved Catholic encyclopedia setting forth Catholic doctrine. Verse 1 of chapter 16, now concerning the collection for the saints, if you look at the commentaries and a background of this, reading up to it in the context and reading what it said in the book of Acts about this period of time, that you know there was a drought in Jerusalem and they were actually taking all kinds of means of survival, primarily grains, dried fruits and vegetables, that type of thing that could be preserved and carried on a long trip. So the collection for the saints was not money, but it was foodstuffs and things that had to do with their survival. As I've given order to the churches of Galatia, this was a massive effort. Iconium, Lystra, Derby, other churches were involved. So do ye. Upon the first of the week, the word day is supplied, but it's certainly implied. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God has prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. Now, if I go out in the field with a scythe and I cut out a bushel of barley or a bushel of wheat and I lay it by myself in store, what do I do with it? Well, I put it in my grain bin or my shed. If I go out and I pick carrots or radishes or anything else and I lay it by me in store, what do I do with it? I keep it by me in store. You can go to Lutheran and Catholic and Protestant churches and you can see a little envelope in the back right by the, the hymnals and so on in the pew. And it will have printed on it a part of this scripture. I have been there and I've seen it, which is to justify the passing of the plate on a Sunday service. Let every one of you lay by him in store. So what you always want to do is to look at that. And when the plate comes by, grab what is in it, put it right here beside you and say, I'm laying by myself in store and pass it on empty to the next guy, right? Because you want to obey what the scripture says. Lay by yourself in storage and keep it there for a while so that when Paul gets there, you won't be out in the field doing the gathering, doing the harvesting, rooting around and gleaning the fields and trying to gather things for these poor, hungry people. And when I come, whomsoever you shall approve by your letters, them will I send to bring your liberality unto Jerusalem. Does that say anything at all about the Eucharistic sacrifice? No. Well, then why does the Roman Catholic Encyclopedia say that it does? I don't know. But it says that. And here's the exact quote. I just read it this morning. I just copied it off my word processor. I've got a copy in my office. got another copy at the house. You want to check up, find out if I'm telling you the truth? The Roman Catholic Encyclopedia says you're going to find in this scripture New Testament apostolic Christians observing the Eucharistic sacrifice on the first day of the week. I find that they were out laboring, the sweat pouring off of them, probably in a hot sun, and grubbing around and digging up roots and vegetables and winnowing grain and harvesting crops so that one day out of six, that harvesting effort, which could go on for eight or ten or twelve hours, would represent a liberal, generous offering that would be sent down to keep these starving people alive. That's what I find in my Bible. Now, maybe I'm crazy. See, maybe I'm reading this wrong. I don't know. Do you think I am? Or how are you reading it? Are you reading about the Eucharistic sacrifice? Who here just read about the Eucharistic sacrifice? Let me see your hands. Man, you mean you're telling me you think you're smarter than that Catholic that wrote that article? Now, you know, these are questions that my father had to meet and had to ponder and had to answer four years before I was ever born. Question. If the law was going to be changed, and God knew it, and we assume he did, why did he 
impose it upon them in the first place? Anybody ever ponder that? If the law was so bad that it really needed alteration, why did he implement it? Why did he propose it? Why did he write it? Why did he obligate them to keep it in the first place? Now, you've all read John, the first chapter, and you know that John, the first chapter, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and he was the light of men, and he came unto his own, and his own received him not. And it shows that the member of the Yahweh, or the Elohim, that became the Logos, who is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, is the individual who said, let there be light, let the dry land appear, let the creatures appear in the sea. I will make man in my image. He is the one who blessed and hallowed the Sabbath day and rested on the Sabbath day from all his labors. He's also the same individual of the Godhead, the God family who put people to death for breaking his laws in going out and insisting on gathering sticks and firewood on the Sabbath when he told them to gather enough on the sixth day to last them through the Sabbath. He is the one who administered on the spot sometimes the death penalty for breaking his divine holy laws. And he says, I change not. Therefore are you sons of Jacob not consumed, harking back to the covenant he made with Abraham and the promise that Abraham's seed would always be on this earth and that the blessings of the scepter and the blessings of national greatness would pertain to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He also says in Hebrews 13:8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, all the way back then, today, right now, here today, and forever out into the future. Now, in the millennium, in the very beginning of the governing, ruling kingdom of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, it says in Zechariah 14, an edict is going to go from the new world headquarters of Jerusalem to all the nations that are going to have to send delegations, I take it is implied, but large numbers of them are going to have to come to Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. If they don't go, then Countless hundreds of thousands and millions of them, including children and elderly and infirm and women and all the rest of them, are going to suffer terrible drought. And they're not going to have a drop of rain. And the rivers and streams and creeks are going to dry up. And the wells are going to go dry. And the crops are going to wither in the field. And he's going to break the back of nation after nation if they won't come up to worship him on the Feast of Tabernacles. And he says, I change not. I'm consistent. I'm always the same. I'm the, fe the, the forever the same. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Is he going to impose such harsh penalties upon people for rebelling against his law? But in the meantime, during this period of time, we just spiritualize away all obligation to be obedient to God. There's an argument here that this world, like spiteful little children, advance to God Almighty. They thumb their nose at him. They try to spit in his face. They try to kick him on the shins. They say, you shut up and be quiet and get over in the corner and be my little household God. And when I get in trouble and when I need you, I will call for you. Oh, Lord, help me. Where were you when I needed you? Where are you in the time of an emergency? Where are you when it hurts? Where are you when there's an accident, trauma, pain, financial reversal, sickness? Where are you when a family member dies? But the rest of the time, just butt out of my life. But because I am good in my vaunted goodness, and I'm such a sweet Christian person, I will observe your law. It's amazing. Well, now, the next vaunted Catholic encyclopedia proposal that you will find the Holy Eucharist being observed by Christians on the first day of the week is in Revelation 1 and verse 10. If you read up to this, you will see it as the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show the servants, his servants those things which must shortly come to pass. And that John was in a vision, as if he were transported forward in a time into a time that is thereafter dealt with chapter after chapter after chapter called the Day of the Lord, or as it is sometimes written, the Lord's Day. But it's the very same thing, the very same expression. And it has nothing to do with Saturday, Sunday, the day of Thus, the day of Thor, the day of Freya, the day of Woden, or any other of the pagan named days of the week. It has to do with the time called the day of the Lord.
So I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And you can get Westcott and Hort, you can get Thayer's, you can get the Greek interlinear, you can get the exhaustive concordances. My father did that in the booklet where he wrote all about this, and I have done it time and time again, and it shows into, meaning projected forward into the time period called the Day of the Lord in prophecy, not the Sunday as the day of the week. And heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, here, I've got a wafer for you, and here's the cup of the Eucharist. Uh, that's not what it says, is it? Now, th is, this a, is this a group of people meeting together for the Eucharistic sacrifice? Anybody here think it is? No. Is it even a Christian meeting of any number of people? No. John's all alone, isn't he? And he's in vision. And he's projected forward into a time called the Lord's Day, which in many other scriptures are called the Day of the Lord, but it's the same thing. And he heard behind him a great voice as of a trumpet. And it said, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches. And he's about to see a continuing sequence of revelatory visions which he is to write down. Is that a Eucharistic sacrifice? Is there any kind of a church service taking place here? But I, you see, I just read with my own eyes out of the Catholic Encyclopedia this morning and copied it straight out of that book to bring to these notes to you to tell you that the most vaunted religious authority on the face of the earth is hurling at you these scriptures to justify keeping Sunday instead of the Sabbath. My father read those same lines, turned to these same scriptures, and waded through them painstakingly praying about it, desperate for an answer, wanting, wanting to find biblical proof for Sunday. He wanted to find it so bad he could taste it. I have said rather passionately to several audiences within the past 10 or 12 years, if I could find any justification for abandoning the Sabbath in the scriptures of God, I would do it with alacrity because it's one of the biggest barriers to people coming into God's church than you could imagine. Now, I want you to think back, as I mentioned and touched upon last week, that in the last number of years, and I'm talking now many, many years, 64 in all, there have been hundreds, if not thousands, of individuals who have lost ranches, lost farms, lost homes, lost jobs, lost their wives, lost their husbands, alienated their children. They have divorced. People have moved from a state to a different place. People have gone from comfort to hardship. People have abandoned a military career two or three years short of being comfortable for the rest of their lives based upon the Sabbath day of God. It was always the test commandment. You can sit there in your chair, as I've said time and again, and nobody knows whether you're coveting or lusting. I can't look at faces and see whether you're coveting or lusting somebody right now. I can't tell as I see you in your chair whether or not you honor your father and your mother. I can't tell whether you're a murderer or a liar or a thief by looking at you. But you're here, and this is the Sabbath day, and you drove into the parking lot, and you got out and you came in this building. I can see that. And when you try to swim upstream against a Sunday-observing world, you become obnoxiously outstanding. You stick out like a sore thumb. You become really, really visible. So the very large crowbar, and I will characterize it as that, that God has used to pry loose many thousands of people from the ways of this world has been the Sabbath day. The catalyst of my father's conversion was the Sabbath day. The catalyst to his baptism. His surrender to God was based upon his dogged search for six months, sitting down, talking to Sunday-keeping ministers, talking to Saturday-observing ministers, comparing their literature, reading Methodist lit literature, Baptist literature, Catholic literature, all the encyclopedias, every book he could find on the subject, desperate to try to make my mother give up on keeping Saturday for Sunday. The answer he sought was Sunday observance. What he wanted to find was justification in the Bible for keeping Sunday. He couldn't find it. And it resulted 
through the twin effects of being destitute and poverty-stricken, and my mother taking up with what he thought was religious fanaticism, and my father surrendering to God and beginning to study further and coming to one doctrine after another, oftentimes studying and praying aloud on his knees as he searched the scriptures and eventually writing because he was an ad man and he was a writer and he had written extensively. And so as he was finding these things, like a lot of other people will do, instead of just taking notes, though, he wrote what he was finding. And his articles, long before I was born, began to be published in the Church of God's Seventh-day publication called The Bible Advocate. Eventually, they asked him to conduct Bible studies, and eventually he began to speak. And by the time I was a little baby boy, my father was beginning to preach and to speak on the Sabbath day before little churches around Oregon. And little by little, that work grew. In 1947, when Ambassador College opened up in Pasadena, California, there were less than 100 people in the entire Radio Church of God on the face of the earth. When I came to college, there were 36 students. In 1947, it began with four students and eight faculty. The absolute foundational doctrine that pried loose all these families, the old pioneering families like the Hammers, that drove all the way out to Belknap Springs to keep the annual holy days, and other families that I could mention around Texas and elsewhere because my father was on W, uh, what is it, uh, forgot, XELO, XEDM, XERB, XEG, and so on, down in Mexico, and the center of all of the radio audience was in the mid part of Texas and over here in East Texas, and a lot of these families began to listen, and little by little as they read literature and articles and the plain truth that he would send them, they came to understand the Sabbath as well. And in each case, the Sabbath was like a giant crowbar that just pried these people's grip on this world and the worldly doctrines of the worldly churches loose and was the catalyst for their own conversion. It's what built the Radio Church of God, and later on, the Worldwide Church of God, as it was reincorporated in about uh, 1964 or so. When all of those early students came and began to learn at the feet of my father, they too were met with the same challenges. And my father believed in challenging students and in having students challenge him. And he believed in having them challenge the textbook. He did not believe in the picture that he drew of students sitting in so many seats like a funnel in the top of their head and the teacher with the picture of so-called knowledge pouring it into their heads, a kind of an educative political cartoon that he saw on one occasion. But he believed that you ought to ask, who is the author? What did he have in mind? What did he say? Why did he say it? In what context? And can he prove it? And so all of those pioneering students had to wade through this same exercise. They didn't just come there and swallow a body of belief. They came there with a glint of suspicion in their eyes. Wait a minute. Just where is this man coming from? What does he want from me? What is he trying to prove? Is he right? Can I prove it? And they had, just like he did, to come to it one doctrine at a time. For decades, the big question, the big decision, the ultimate test for all of those pioneering families, for those pioneering students, and for thousands and eventually more than 150,000, members of the Church of God was the Sabbath day. For all the men and women in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, as I think of them in their hundreds and their thousands, when whether they were working women or men, and whether they had a motel or a service station, or were clerking in a store, or worked as a rural mail carrier, or worked as a nurse in a hospital on call 24 hours a day, or had put in 18 years in the Air Force, Every one of those families came face to face with the same incredible thing that my father found my mother taking up with in 1926. And every one of them in their own way had to fight a spiritual struggle against Satan the devil, against all of their Protestant or Catholic upbringing and background, against all of these musty old books, the encyclopedias and the books and the literature from these Sunday-keeping churches, and wade through these scriptures and come to a conclusion where the breadwinner and the man of that family or the single mother, whoever it might have been, had to make a decision that cost them, in some cases, tens of thousands of dollars. Some of them forsook ranches 
I know of who they are. Some of them orchards, some of them dairies. There were dairy farmers that said, I got a hundred cows and I got to milk them on the Sabbath. And they found out that God's agrarian reform isn't going to be monoculture and dairy farmers having a hundred at a whack, but just a family having one or two enough for the needs of, the own, of their own family. But there were people who went out of business. And there were miracles and miracles and miracles of faith that we heard of by the dozens and by the score that I've mentioned last week. And those people weren't lying. When people would come to you and tell you, my boss told me if I came here to the Feast of Tabernacles I was going to lose my job, but Martha and I there and the children, we're just trusting God, and we're here at the feast, and when I go home I know God's going to work it out. And they would go home, and sure enough, God did work it out. And they were given an even better job. I've had people tell me they made 50% more or double what they had forsaken in order to obey God and to keep His Sabbath day. Well, my father preached and taught in all those years, knowing that the greatest handicap for people to come into a little growing, fledgling church organization was God's Sabbath and the annual holy days, and then other doctrines like clean and unclean meats and so on. So he faced those same questions. Let me ask you a few questions. What Bible did Jesus use when he read out of the scriptures in the synagogues? The only Bible that existed, the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. What Bible did Paul use? The only Bible that was existent or extant. You suppose Paul was so vain that he actually thought he was writing the Bible when he simply sent a letter to a cantankerous church like Corinth? Of course not. Well, let's turn to one scripture, if you would, in 2 Timothy, the third chapter, some of the pastoral epistles. And again, these were merely letters that Paul was writing to some of the young men that worked with him. He didn't write one to Segundus or Gaius or Aristarchus or some of the others, but he did to Timotheus and to Titus and to Philemon. And in 2 Timothy, the third chapter, he says that there's going to come a time when, verse 13, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which you have learned and have been assured of, knowing of whom you have learned them, and that from a child you have known the holy scriptures. Which scriptures were those? Oh, that was the Torah and the law and the Psalms or the writings. Those were the three divisions of what we call the Old Testament, the only scriptures extant. And what were those scriptures able to do? Those scriptures which are able to make the wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And he could get that out of reading the Old Testament. And the Apostle Paul said, cling fast, hold fast to that. All scripture, and he did not look upon what he was writing as scripture by any manner, method, or means, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly finished unto all good works. Chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and at his kingdom, Preach the word. Be instant, meaning keep at it, in season, out of season. Don't ever get to a time where you think it's not time where you stick to the Bible, the word of God, and you preach the word. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering, that's patience and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. How many times have I warned you and all of you along the tape program who will hear this sermon as well that we are living in a time where biblical prophecy says when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people then know that these things, the tribulation, the day of the Lord, are getting very, very close. That there is to come in Second Thessalonians, the second chapter, we'll get to that in a moment, a great falling away first from the truth, and that that is another sign. Now, one of the largest and certainly the wealthiest and the most powerful of all of the Sabbatarian churches in the world 
has been the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And they're not tampering with the Sabbath day, but they have no dynamic speaker per se, even though they have a program here and there. And they are a very wealthy church because they have hospitals and homes for unwed mothers and orphanages and schools. Pitcairn Island is almost 100% Seventh-day Adventist. They're all around the world. There are the Seventh-day Baptists. There is a Church of God Seventh-day that has experienced a tremendous influx of new members that have flown and gone out of the WCG. And then there's the Worldwide Church. And because of its past rather large income, reported to be upwards of $200 million a year, they are a force to be reckoned with and could have been on television and radio, but they have backed off of television and radio. They no longer espouse and apparently do not believe the identity of Israel, that we are Manasseh and Britain is Ephraim. So they pay zero attention to prophecy. So there is no message of witness and warning. They do not fancy that they are doing a work of a watchman. Now they're abandoning not only the Sabbath, the holy days, unclean meats, but talk about shooting yourself not in the foot, but maybe in the chest, tithing. You don't have to do any of it anymore. You only do it because you're a good person. But look at what the Apostle Paul said. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church, verse 17 of Acts 20, and he talked to them at quite some length. And finally he said, verse 25, And now behold, I know that ye all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. He knew that prophecy that he would probably be arrested when he got to Jerusalem was going to happen, and sure enough it did. And he was sent to Rome, and eventually it cost him his life. This was the last time he was going to see them alive. Wherefore, I take you to record this day, I am pure from the blood of all men. I have not looted, I have not pillaged, I have not taken advantage, I have behaved myself responsibly and with integrity. I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. He exhausted himself trying to preach and teach and labor and counsel and minister and pray for those people. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Spirit has made you bishops or overseers, to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. It's his church, not yours. He owns it, you don't. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch, and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Why? Because he saw it coming. Because he saw in some of the leadership the vanity, the jealousy, the ego, the greed. He saw the hidden agendas. He saw the attitudes. He saw the moods. He saw that these people, if given an opportunity, will try to jump overboard and row their own canoe off in some other different direction and take as many people for their crew as they can get. And so for three solid years he had been saying this thing. This is not the first time he said it. I don't think I have ever, except I remember one time that I got on my knees with a man and I was in tears in the prayer. I won't give you his name, but I knew that he was about to abandon the Sabbath and ask him if he would kneel with me and pray. And he was a minister in the church, and he left the church. And I was unable to do anything about it. But by and large, I have not had this kind of an experience where he is preaching and teaching with beloved brethren and actually tears spilling down his face when he's saying, don't do it. Hold fast to the truth. Remain staunchly faithful and loyal to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't go off in some other direction. He said, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, you yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities. And that wasn't necessary, but he did it in some cases. In other cases, he didn't have to do it, but in some cases, he did it. And to them that were with me, I have showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak, to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, It is more blessed to give than receive. And when he had thus spoken, he knelt down. And that's unusual, isn't it? This, is a, this has a real finality to it. It has an emotional 
content to it that you can perhaps begin to imagine. He had known these people very well. They had known him very well. He was coming by there on a last visit, and he was convicted that he would never see them again. And he prayed with them all, and they all were moved by it. They all listened to what he said, and maybe at that moment, washed out of their minds was any hidden agenda, and there was nobody with an evil intent saying, I can't wait to see his dust settle in the road, and then I'm going to take the flock. They might not have even believed it themselves at that moment. There could have been quite a bit of sincerity here. They prayed. They hugged one another. Tears streaming down their face. They're blowing their noses. There are hugs and handshakes. Looking into each other's eyes. He's calling them by name. Oh, Paul, it's going to be so terrible without you. Just, you know, take care of yourself. Hopefully we will see you again. They all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most for all the words that he spake, that they should see his face no more. And they accompanied him under the ship. And sure enough, as the years went by, some of those very same men that had cried with the Apostle Paul took parts of that church and went off in their own direction. In Second Thessalonians, the second chapter, is a very interesting prophecy, and the meaning of this prophecy is obvious on its face. But there is a little subliminal or secondary and perhaps tertiary uh, little meaning here that I think can be certainly safely implied. It is not the primary meaning of this prophecy at all. The primary meaning of the prophecy is that a man of sin who is the false prophet of biblical prophecy, the false prophet identified in the book of Revelation, who will be a cohort with the beast, who is a military political leader over ten nations. And you read of him in Revelation 13 and Revelation 17, Daniel 2, Daniel 4, Daniel 7, Daniel 11. And I believe that he is a great geopolitical and a great religious figure. We beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter, as from us that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any manner, form, method, means, whether it's by writing or whether it's by lying about the letter that he was supposed to have written. For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. Now, there are several ways that falling away can occur. One is that people in the church can leave the church, which is the true church, and that's a falling away. People fall away. Another way is for the leaders of the church to fall away from the truth and draw the people after them. Another way is for certain segments of the congregation to fall away from the truth and to remain right there and simply be waiting it out as tired old Christians. The Bible tends to indicate in the analogy of the virgins in Matthew 25 that fully 50% of the church of God are going to be sound asleep and virtually with their lamps, which is a metaphor for the degree to which they are inspired by God's Holy Spirit and the degree to which they're involved and engaged actively in the work of God or whether they're just tired old Christians waiting it out. And he shows that fully 50% of the church would be sound asleep at that time, would be unmoved that there would be virtually nothing you could do to stir them up, and at the moment when they least expect it, it all begins to fall down around their ears. When he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people. What is power? Well, you could think it's spiritual power, but you don't see much of that. There are only comparatively few healings ever taking place, and those usually are not dramatic. They're not out in public. They're not something that we see. People are not leaping out of wheelchairs. We're not seeing the blind suddenly seeing. My deaf sons do not suddenly hear. But people will write to us after writing in for prayer that the doctor diagnosed the cancer and it's gone. And we will get letters like this from time to time. It's less than one out of ten. I'm sure it's probably one out of a hundred who will write to us and say that there's been a dramatic healing and the rest of them we, know we don't hear from them again except when they ask for prayer for the second time. So you could talk about spiritual power, if you wish. What about the power of the pulpit, the power to rebuke, exhort, correct, and preach the word in season and out of season with all long-suffering and doctrine? Is that waning? Is there a tendency to speak smooth things, speak deceits? All right. Let no man deceive you by any means. That day shall not come except there come a falling away first. 
and that man of sin be revealed, the son of destruction or perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember you not that when I was yet with you I told you these things? So apparently Paul warned all the churches. He didn't just warn the church at Ephesus and pray with them and cry with them. He'd also warned the people in Thessaloniki and said, when I was there in person, I had warned you that this type of thing was going to happen. Now you know what withholds that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity does already work. And so now God is a mystery. You can't understand about God the Father and Christ the Son. And you can't understand about duality, but you've got to go back and think that individuals who wrestled with theological and philosophical concepts in the second and third centuries, who came up with the idea of the Trinitarian or the triune nature of God, had it right, and that we should not try to understand because there are no partitions or no divisions or no distinctions in God. Uh, maybe there's a sort of a being there, but you really can't use the term being and apply it to God. You can't use the term person and apply it to God, even though the Bible does. And so they have made God into a mystery. And now it's no wonder that they've discovered that by the artifice of claiming the new covenant does away with the old covenant and subtly making people think that has something to do with the law rather than with the disobedience of the people, that they can now do away with the holy Sabbath day. For the mystery of iniquity does already work, only who, who, he who letteth, and that's an unfortunate old King James English translation that does mean restrains, will continue to restrain, is what is implied, until he be taken out of the way. But let me remind you, that phrase, be taken out of the way, is a Greek present progressive verb, which means it's, it's pronounced ginomai, G-I-N-O-M-A-I, and it means one of two or three things, until it become evident for what it is, or until it arise in the midst, or it, until it obtains, until it becomes to be. You know why, until it becomes to be, until it becomes self-evident, or until it arises in the midst. Look at the diaglot, look at some other references, don't just take my word for that. Look at the Bullinger's Companion Bible, look at some of the commentaries. There are alternative suggestions as to the meaning of that passage. Not until he, Paul, be taken out of the way, but until he, the man of sin, become evident for what he really is, is what is being implied here. And then shall that wicked be revealed, as if to emphasize what I just said, because the context follows right on. Then shall that wicked become evident, be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him who is coming out is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. Let's turn to 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter, and verse 1. And the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits. I wonder, I wonder how long a man can compromise on one or two or other major points of the Ten Commandments personally before he is powerfully led to start to try to preach compromise about the Ten Commandments publicly. Giving heed to seducing spirits. Are there spirits? you believe in a spirit world? Well, if you didn't, you wouldn't be sitting here. Do you believe in a god? Do you believe in a devil? Where would the devil most logically and most likely be working? When it says, have accomplished the power to scatter, rather the power of the holy people, there's another power that I failed to mention, and that power is the power of wealth, the power of money, because that power gives you authority to pick up the telephone and say, I'd like to put my program on WOR New York. And without the power of that bank account that has the dollars in there to pay the bills when they come due, you can't pick up the telephone and say, I would like to put my program on WOR New York. When I go over there and walk into that little building over next door that we converted from an old warehouse shop where we were making cabinetry and some of the walls you see around you, and made it into a television studio, when I walk in there, do you have any idea what's going through my mind before I walk in there and sit down in front of that camera sometimes? 
You know what we pay on just one station for me to sit there and to talk for a half hour? Reaching out to the general public, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and I have the power or the authority to do that because God's faithful people, tithing people, God-fearing people, people who obey God, are willingly sitting down every time they get a paycheck, and the first check they write off the top of all of it they know is holy to God. It may as well be sitting there shining with a translucence and glowing in the dark because they know that's not my money, it is God's money. We are to be stewards of that money and to spend it as judiciously and as carefully and as faithfully as we know how. The only power I've got is the power of electronics. I can probably be heard a little better, although we have terrible acoustics and poor speakers and we need to do something about that in this room by electronically speaking into these microphones so that you can hear better. If I were up here without the microphone, I'd probably lose my voice again by tonight. I'd have to roll up a Saturday evening post and talk to you through that. I could stand on a street corner and have a megaphone, like at a cheerleaders uh, rally, and be talking to people going by and shout out, them, uh, shout out at them about the Sabbath or the Ten Commandments of God, and I'd get nowhere. My roots are those of my father's roots. I am standing before you today because when God healed my mother by the Runcorns and their pastor, who were Sabbath keepers, she was healed and she was able to become pregnant and give birth to my brother Richard David and to me or I wouldn't be here. I too had my struggle with the Sabbath, as every other teenager does. And I too had my resentments and my rebellion. And I, too, rebelled against my father's religion and joined the Navy to get out from under that religion and all that it stood for. And in the Navy, I smoked and I cursed and I got my body loaded up with tattoos. And I rebelled against the Sabbath day because I wanted so badly to be a part of the world. And I stood around the piano in Al Hall's mother-in-law's home and sang Christmas carols and enjoyed Christmas with that family and loved every minute of it. I dove into the world with both hands greedily, ate pork chops every time they served them. But finally, when I came back to Ambassador College, and some events took place in my life that caused me to begin to read some of the things that my father had written, and to read other religious literature, and to compare it in the same way that he did, and try to find other religious literature that explained itself so I could understand it, I had to finally give up and understand He's right, and the Bible is right, and the Sabbath day is the day that must be kept. And I went to him one day and said, Dad, do you suppose that even I could be baptized? And he broke down and wept. And he said, sure I could.